This is the What Now Podcast. He said that for years he had tried to pray it away. He tried to change. He'd read everything. I mean, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there's some really painful rhetoric out there in Christianity and the LDS faith, all faiths really. And my son had read all of it. And he had a hard time breaking what was true and what was not and what's changed and what's evolved. And just bringing that burden to us and learning about the depression and suicide rates among this population, which are astounding. LGBTQ kids are three times more likely to die by suicide. And according to the Trevor Project, which is a suicide prevention hotline, one LGBTQ child attempts suicide every 45 seconds. And learning these things and seeing what so many people go through, it was just devastating. We are a family-centered church. We are a family-centered church with the goal being, if you're gay, which you didn't choose and you can't change, it's a very hard place to be. And of course, we believe in continued revelation. We believe in further light and knowledge. This is the What Now Podcast, where we discuss topics surrounding cultural norms in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in an effort to create more understanding, hope, and healing for our church community. I am Mary Alice Hatch, your host. Join me as I speak with Autumn McAlpin about how to anchor ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ when we face unique experiences in life that can challenge our faith and cause us to doubt the plan of happiness. Autumn shares how we can show up for each other in productive ways and how being vulnerable can be a strength that allows ourselves and others to find the hope and connection we need in our faith journey. Today I'm here with Autumn McAlpin, and we are going to be talking about how to anchor ourselves in the gospel of Jesus Christ when we face the unique experiences of life that can challenge our faith and cause us to doubt the plan of happiness. But before we begin, would you mind taking a few minutes to tell us about yourself, Autumn, so listeners can get to know you a bit better? Of course, and thank you so much for having me. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I was the second oldest of eight children. And so I spent most of my life babysitting. (laughs) And as such, I swore I would never get married and never have kids. And I would never go to BYU where both my parents had gone. And I'd spend my summers in California. And I dreamed of this life where I worked in entertainment or as some political correspondent who traveled the world and had all these exotic adventures. But I ended up at BYU and I was married at 19 and a mom at 21. And I have absolutely no regrets as to how everything worked out. So I've had a life filled with opportunities and I've learned to couple family responsibility with my goals and dreams and been able to accomplish things that I never thought I would. And so I look back now and I'm so glad for the path I did take. Um, So my husband and I, we live in San Clemente, California. We have five kids currently. We have four biological children and we have a foster son. Our oldest daughter is a student at BYU, and we have a son at Berkeley, and then we have three high schoolers, three teenagers in the house, so there's never a dull moment at home. My husband works in software, and I've passed hats through several careers, but all with the same backbone as a writer. So I started out, um, I graduated with an English teaching degree from BYU, and I was a teacher for a year, and then I wrote a book that got published right out of college, and it was a graduation gift book. It's called Real World... 101, A Survival Guide to Life After High School. And this was a book written back when kids actually read books to find out how to do things. Now they just go on YouTube. But back in the day, they used to read books and it was a book on how to get a job, how to do well in college, those types of things. And that led into a job working as a columnist for the Orange County Register for about 10 years. I worked 
as a humor columnist writing about life as a mother of four. And um, also I was an entertainment critic. And then that led into screenwriting. And I um, started self-studying how to write a film. And then once my youngest child went to school in kindergarten, I decided to pursue a goal that I'd always had to get a master's degree. And so I went to USC and I got a master in professional writing with an emphasis in screenwriting. And there I also took up playwriting. And so I had a really great experience there getting some of my plays put up on stages and getting some films written. And that migrated me into being a filmmaker because I'd written a feature length script that I also helped raise the funds for. And my mentor at the time said, well, that makes you a producer. So I then became a producer and then eventually a director of films. So I currently work as a writer and a filmmaker, and I've made two feature films that are both available to the public on iTunes, Amazon, and the like, other streamers. One is called Waffle Street, and one is called Miss Arizona. And currently I am working, I'm helping as an executive producer on a documentary that's being made right now in Utah about some kids who find hope and belong at a place called Encircle. And I also write the weekly family stories at a site called Lift and Love, which is an intersection for families in the LDS church who have LGBTQ children. And I also just finished a book of free verse about my own experience as the mother of a gay son. So that's currently the hats I'm wearing and what I'm juggling with my full house. And I couldn't be happier. I feel like I'm in a great place in my life. That's incredible. And it's interesting how we have this plan for our lives and how it unfolds in unique ways we never expected. Exactly. (laughs) I know you're an incredible woman. I know you personally. I'm grateful to have you in our ward here in San Clemente. I invited you to come today just because you have a lot of interesting experience with a lot of what you call opportunities. I love how you discuss these trials and challenges in our life as these opportunities. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit today. I love the talk given in our recent conference by General, by Elder Adrian Ochoa, where he speaks to those who are struggling with their faith when life doesn't go according to plan. We all have these plans and we feel like we're following the plan of happiness and the gospel plan and we're doing everything we can. But sometimes even when we're totally righteous, totally obedient, the plan can change and it can be hard. And I think a lot of people struggle with that when they're doing everything right and everything seems to fall apart. So I am so grateful that our church leaders are talking about that from the pulpit, about the reality of our life experiences and how we as natural men and women can struggle and doubt when our expectations and our hopes aren't met, especially when we're doing all that's been asked of us or when we're offended or we're hurt by the cultural aspects within our church culture. So I'd like to jump in and just talk with you about how can we allow for more vulnerability within our culture to talk about these different opportunities that stretch and challenge us? That's a great question, Mary Alice. I agree with you on everything you just said. And as a storyteller, I obviously believe in the power of story. But one of the edicts we practice as writers is that the more specific we are with our stories, the more universal they become. And each of us faces such unique challenges, right? Like my experience is nothing like yours, even though we're friends. It's the same with all my friends. And the more personal we become as we share with each other, the more connected we do become. And at the time that you asked me to teach that lesson, I was going through some stuff and I was raised in the church. I was raised in a black and white family where this was right. This is wrong. This is what you do. You go to church every week. I was one of those people who always loved going to church. I always said yes to anything anybody asked me to do, whether it was teach a lesson or serve a certain in a certain calling. 
And at the time you asked me to teach this lesson, which I've enjoyed teaching lessons in, in other words, and I sometimes speak youth events in our state. I've always loved that. It's something I enjoy doing. I enjoy connecting with audiences and studying material. And at this particular time, I was in a place where I felt a pit in my stomach. I was like, I don't think I'm the right person right now to teach a lesson. And I was going through my own thoughts and processes about whether or not I was going to be coming to church or whether I was going to continue on a somewhat of a sabbatical that in a processing that I've been taking over the past couple of years. And then I opened the talk, Elder Cho's talk. <laughs> and in the very open of the talk, he says, this talk is for those who once sought to sing the song of redeeming love, but who struggle to do so now. And I was at a public place. I was at our local gym in town. And I just started bawling as I read that. And I thought, well played, Mary Alice, well played. You know my heart. And you were inspired to ask me to teach this because, well, I thought it was funny. I thought, what better way than to ask her to get come back to church than to ask her to teach a lesson about people who struggle to come to church. <laughs> and it's not that I lost my faith. I wasn't having a crisis of faith. It's just I'm in a vulnerable spot in my life right now. And I'm processing things that are hard for me. And in that processing, some of the things that are most sacred and reverent and spiritual to me are happening individually and not in community. A church is a place where we find community. And some of the things I'm going through are very unique. And I don't necessarily always feel the support of community. And so I wasn't sure if I could or should show up, but I did. And it was a really good experience. Yes. So thank you. <laughs> No, it was great because when you gave your lesson, you were very vulnerable. You were very open about what you were going through in your life and your family, which allows other people to also connect and feel like they have a place in the community, right? I mean, no one's perfect. And I think in our culture, we can lean into that facade of perfection, which is very polarizing to a lot of people who are there and don't have a perfect life and are struggling with things. And when you can be vulnerable, and that is kind of a scary place to be, right? Because none of us want to face judgment or feel like we would be talked about or criticized. We're always kind of protective of our family and ourselves. But when we do allow for that vulnerability, it can really help people. That's so true. It is so true. And it was interesting because in my preparation for the lesson, I had a very strong prompting that you need to be very open. And I'm an open book. I mean, anyone can ask me anything and I'll tell you everything. But regarding certain topics, I've closed off in certain audiences because I have gone through things that a lot of people haven't, as we all have in our different categories of opportunity in our lives. But I've had personal revelations that don't always line up with things I've been taught. And sometimes I just feel guarded and I feel I need to protect where I'm at, especially when it comes to my children. And But I was prompted to be very open. And as such, several women came up to after and said, why can't we be more real like this? Why can't we talk about what we're really going through? And that following week, I encountered several of the women who were in that audience, some who I didn't know very well. I'm newer to this particular ward. And they all said, you know, I'm not going through what you're going through, but I am going through something. And your lesson made me think about the value of what you had to say. I apply it to my own personal Gethsemane that I'm going through. And there were other mothers in that room and mothers who weren't in that room. And I know exactly why they weren't in that room, but who are in the same position as I, who are parents of LGBTQ children. And it's a hard place. Church can be a hard place for us. And some of those women came up and shared with me their experiences and since have reached out several times asking for support and friendship and connection. And isn't that the way Christ ministered, right? He met us all where we were at. 
And he sat and he listened and he learned from us and he loved. And that's what we can do for others as true ministers. And my patriarchal blessing said, you will serve a mission in your lifetime, which I have not served an official called by the church mission in my lifetime. I got married quite young and I don't know if I see a formal mission in my future, but I have felt in this past two years that I have been put on a mission of ministry to those in this space in this sometimes forgotten or untended vineyard that we need each other. We absolutely need each other and we are each other's resources. And so I've felt this call and it's not one that's come from a leader per se on earth, but it's a very spiritual call that I felt to be there for those who need me. And I am so grateful for the mentors who have been there for me through this journey. I agree with you on that too. It's not always a formal mission call, but it could be what you're doing now is very much a mission. Your outreach efforts are really wide. I mean, you have events, you're very involved, you're open about what your experience is, allowing for others to connect and not feel so isolated. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to go through what you've gone through in the last, when did your son come out last year? April, 2020 on Earth Day. On Earth Day. beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. So can you share how you've navigated that journey for you and your family? Yes. So having my son come out has been quite the experience. <laughs> I feel like I've gone through stages through this experience and I'll hit pointers or mar like mile markers and I'll be like, wow, now I'm in a new phase. And I feel like I'm going through these phases and stages. And having our son come out as gay actually was not hard. <laughs> that was not a bad thing for our family. That was not a hard thing for us. I, mean, I wouldn't call it a trial or a hardship, but what he shared with us when he came out, that was hard. And he came into our room. It was the pandemic had just started. It was April that year where everyone was home. We were in quarantine and it's kind of remarkable how many families I know whose kids came out during that time. And I think that the safety of being in your home environment made a lot of kids feel a little bit safer and knowing that they would have time quietly to process that with their families. So that was the case for us. Our son came into our room really late one night. He was 17 at the time, a junior in high school. And he said, I need to talk. And it was about 3 a.m. And he said, I have some things to tell you. First of all, I'm gay. Secondly, I'm leaving the church. And third, I'm having pretty intense mental health struggles. And he went on to share with us that he believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the church was not a safe place for him. And that was so hard to hear and to have him share with us things that have been said over the years, over pulpits or in classrooms or by people who just don't know better. And just to hear some of the things that and how they hit him. And then to even think back in my family, we're pretty affirming. I mean, working in the entertainment industry, I have tons of gay friends. We have gay family members. We've always been the types where that's part of our community. That's not a big deal to us. But just hearing that the pain that my own son was having, and it made my heart break open for all those other kids out there who maybe didn't grow up in homes that they knew their parents would accept them. And so it's the cultural challenge that presents itself. It's not that my son is gay. It's the culture of how does that fit in to where we're at in the church and in the world. And it's important that people know in the church things that maybe they don't know if they haven't thought about or experienced this themselves, but there's a difference between the law of chastity and the law of celibacy. A lot of people say, well, same, same. It's no big deal. A lot of people are single. They can just be single too. And there's a difference. There's a difference between living the law of chastity and living the law of celibacy. And there are no manuals or support groups or guidelines for how to be gay in the church. That's not a thing. And many of us in this advocacy space are pushing for that. 
if you're going to continue having these policies that are very harmful to our children, we need some resources. We are the resources, our experiences. And I love some of our general authorities have said beautiful things about how we can be better. And Elder Russell M. Russell Ballard said that, I'm going to read this so I don't butcher it, but he said, we need to listen to and understand what our LGBT brothers and sisters are feeling and experiencing. Certainly we must do better than we have done in the past so that all members feel they have a spiritual home where their brothers and sisters love them and where they have a place to worship and serve the Lord. And I so agree with that. And if someone has found a way to do this successfully in their ward and to minister and make our LGBTQ members feel safe, I would love to hear about it. I'd let, show me where that ward is. I will show up next Sunday and visit. It's a hard space to be in. And I don't think anyone denies that. I think that even leadership has acknowledged how difficult it is. And my son personally, and it, it changes. I always knew these things, but when it becomes personal, you become the mama bear, right? And with my son, he's always been such an exceptional human being. He's uniquely, he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. He's very kind, very sensitive, very sweet, very artistic, very talented in all realms. He's always that person that everyone just loves that they can turn to, confide in. And he's also extremely ethical and moral. He's very honest. And so when he came in and told us these things that he was going through, I believed him. Not one part of me for a second doubted this was his experience. But as he shared the levels of the pits of despair he'd been through, he'd known since he was 11. I did not know until he told me. I had wondered because he didn't seem to have a really strong interest in girls in high school. But I just thought he was really, really righteous and trying to keep himself <laughs> pure. I don't know. But when he shared with me what he'd gone through, that since age 11, he'd known this about himself. And he'd, he'd always known he was different. He just didn't know how to articulate it till he was 11. And he said that for years, he had tried to pray it away. He'd tried to change. He'd read everything. I mean, he'd read absolutely everything. And a lot of times when our kids come to us and share this with us, we have to know that they've read things that were written back when it, the things that were written are abysmal. I mean, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, there's some really painful rhetoric out there in Christianity and the LDS faith, all faiths really. And my son had read all of it. And he had a hard time breaking what was true and what was not and what's changed and what's evolved. And just bringing that burden to us and learning about the depression and suicide rates among this population, which are astounding. LGBTQ kids are three times more likely to die by suicide. And according to the Trevor Project, which is a suicide prevention um, hotline, one LGBTQ child attempts suicide every 45 seconds. And learning these things and seeing what so many people go through, it was just devastating. And my friend, Natalie, who's been one of my friends and mentors in this space, she told me about this analogy that made a lot of sense to me. She said, showing up as an LGBTQ family in the church oftentimes feels like going to the greatest new restaurant in town. Everyone's raving about it. They're promising you're going to love it. Everything about it's great. And you take your family there and you get there and you all sit down and you're savoring over the menu. You're so excited about what your options are. And then the waiter comes to take the order and he goes around the room and then he points to one of your kids and says, wait, you can't eat here. You can't have everything on this menu. You can have water. You can stay, you can sit, but you can have water. And the relevance of that is that we are a family-centered church. We are a family-centered church with the goal being, we're taught from the time we're in primary, eternal marriage, temples. You marry, marriages between a man and a woman. That's what you're taught growing up in this church. Well, if you're gay, which you didn't choose and you can't change, and you're told you don't get to get married, that's essentially like, it feels like you're being offered water sometimes. And well, you're watching everyone feast around you. And so it can really create some cognitive dissonance for a family. 
it's a very hard place to be. And of course, we believe in continued revelation. We believe in further light and knowledge, but it's a hard place in the meantime. And I think it's easier to look at somebody else and say, well, you can just wait and be patient while I go and enjoy my spouse and children. But it's a hard place when you are the person who's asked to wait. And so for my family right now in the restaurant, I feel like I was thinking about this. How does this apply to my family? And I thought, well, you know, I've got one kid who's circling the buffet at the restaurant. They may have gotten up from the table, but they're circling the buffet looking for what looks good. Got another kid who's over visiting another table of friends at the restaurant. I've got a spouse and a couple of kids sitting in the car honking and telling me, hey, it's time to go. And then my sweet son who's walked home already. And I am left asking to speak to the manager. That's where I'm at right now. I got to be honest. <laughs> I love this analogy. I'm like saying, wait, this isn't right. What are we going to do? We've got to make this better. So I want to talk to the manager and I do it personally and privately through prayer, but I also am doing what I can to share our story and to let our voices be heard so that people understand that this isn't always a healthy place for everybody and we can do better. And right after my son came out, I had a lot of quiet mornings during the pandemic where everyone was still sleeping, where I'd go sit outside in our side yard and I would just think about what I was going to do. I knew he wasn't going to go back to church. I actually had that confirmed to me, like, you know, pressure him. You need to let him just, he's okay. I've got him. And I just wondered, like, what does my future look like? This image kept coming to my mind. And it was strange. It was the image of that little get out of jail free card and monopoly that you get. And it was like, okay, you've got a hall pass. You're the mom of a gay son. Everyone will understand if you leave the church. Everyone will understand if you don't show up. But see, for me, the problem is church is not jail to me. <laughs> I don't want, I'm not trying to get out of the church. I'm trying to find ways to stay in. And that's the thing. And luckily, my son saying, I believe in the gospel of Christ. I have that same testimony. Like I believe in the gospel of Christ. I will never untether from that. I will never leave that. I just have to find the safest place to practice my spirituality and to encourage my family to stay rooted to what the true gospel is. And I do feel like for me right now, and I'm not saying this is for everybody. I have many, many friends in this space who have felt the need to leave the church. And there are valid reasons. And I understand why many times. A lot of times it's for the mental health of their family. And that is, we have to protect our families. But for me right now, I do feel called to stay and to do this work from within. And my work, I define as sharing love and the truth of the situation so that others will understand. And so that we all can do better loving others. Sometimes for me, that means I show up. Sometimes I can stay through both meetings. Sometimes I can't. And often it's not even because something's sad. Sometimes it's just I'm feeling vulnerable or sensitive that day. And I want to protect what I do have and keep it intact. If I'm feeling fragile, sometimes I don't want to sit through a meeting where I fear that that one person in the back corner, we all know who they are, is going to raise their hand and once again tell me that my son's inner makeup and chemical composition is from Satan. I don't need to hear that. And so sometimes I finish church in my car. Sometimes I wait for my kids in the car. Sometimes I don't make it to the building, but I have my own private practice through podcasts or faith promoting music. And I'm just in that kind of place right now. I'm in a vulnerable place. But one thing that I heard early on in our journey that was so powerful and has really affected the way I've conducted my practice in spirituality over the past two years is a woman similar to me after her son had just come out, she attended church for the first time. And this cute young dad got up and was bearing his testimony with the toddler on his hip and talking about how grateful he is for the family proclamation and the plan and that the family plan is defined as this. 
and some of the things he was saying and it with he was trying hard and he believed it and she said he was a nice guy but some of the things he was saying were hurtful to her and she was feeling very sensitive and she wanted to get up and just leave or scream at him and say you're hurting me and she had this prompting come that this whisper of the words they just don't know yet and i felt that so strongly and i try to channel that <laughs> When I'm having a moment of weakness or vulnerability, I sometimes have to remind myself, people just don't know what they have. They don't know. They don't know what they haven't experienced. And I have to have grace and I have to have patience and I have to be the person that can share with them what it's like so that they can understand how can we all do better and be more loving. And that's part of your mission. I mean, that is part of your mission. You trying and fighting to stay in allows all these other people to have a safe place. So when they show up, there's someone else they can connect with that understands. It's important. I think so. And I hope so. I do feel that. And like teaching that lesson, I felt that after speaking with some of the people I did, I felt like, okay, if I'm here just for that one person or that one child, I can do that just for them. And that's what Christ does. He ministers to the one. So, and it wasn't just one person that came up to you after I was watching as a little stream of people were coming up to you and you were a safe space for those people. And that could have been a day where they're like, this isn't my place. And that is a missionary opportunity. I mean, we're all missionaries. You know, there are formal missions that happen, but you're serving a very specific, unique mission right now to help people find their place in this community. Because there is a place for everybody, but sometimes it doesn't feel like that within the culture. The culture can be very difficult. And I'd like to ask you to just share how people have effectively ministered to your son and your family. Do you have experiences that you can share around that? Absolutely. Yes. So many. I have so many what to do's and so many, a few what not to do's. The very first day. So after our son came out to us, he was ready to come out to his family and close friends. And he did that pretty quickly within a couple of weeks. And he started to feel so much lighter. I noticed he'd been in a dark hole for about 18 months. And instantly we saw he stood up straighter, his shoulders lightened and the light returned to his eyes. And as he embraced his authenticity and shared who he was with people, it was a beautiful experience. I remember the day he wanted to come out publicly because he didn't want to walk around town or have to go back to school after the pandemic, the quarantine had lifted. He wanted people just to know, but he didn't want to have to tell everybody. He was not on social media. He's never really been into social media. So he asked if I would share on my social media posts with both of us that we wrote together. So we did that. And I remember the day I posted, oh man, are you nervous when you post something like that? And I posted the two of us, a picture of us wearing our just love t-shirts and told the story about him and how remarkable and amazing he is. And I'm proud of his bravery and, and shared that he was gay. And, and I remember this one guy from a previous ward we had been and just showed up on our doorstep and knocked and I opened the door and he's just like, hi. I was like, hi. And he's like, I'm just here. He didn't really know what to say or what to do but he just showed up. And we had other people like that. We had a stake presidency counselor who remains one of my true Christ-like heroes to this day. I call him the Good Samaritan. He sent us the most beautiful text. And he said, I'll walk with you. I'll march with you. I've always sensed your son had a special connection to the Savior. And now I have a better understanding of why. And just him honoring our son and holding him in that space meant a lot. Once we moved towards our former bishop, who was a dear, dear friend, my husband had worked with him, he continued to just take my son to lunch, even though my son had left the church. He just continued to take my son to lunch, just as a friend, not to talk about church, not to talk about anything religious, 
but just to be a friend. And most recently, as you know, our stake has a new stake president who's really, really gone above and beyond to show up for us. I serve in the stake just serve committee. And shortly after the new stake presidency was called, I wanted to reach out to them and just share some of my thoughts about just serve, but also I didn't know all of them. I mean, I didn't know our stake president at all. I'd never seen him before. And I wanted to just introduce our family. And I did want to share some of the things that had happened in the past that maybe were not the best experiences in the stake. And I wanted to share that and offer myself as a resource to other families in this situation, just because they didn't know me. And I just wanted to share, I have a lot of resources. I have books I can recommend. If anyone else is in that space, I'm here. But at the same time, I also sent my little book I'd written, which is free verse and poetry. So it's a quick read. It's probably a 45 minute read, but I sent that to him as well. So that's a little presumptuous to send all of that to a new stake presidency, right? And expect that they're going to have time to read all of this. Well, within like 38 hours, I had a call from the new stake president or actually with text. He said, call me now. We've got to talk. And I I just that I felt that pit. Oh, no, I'm fired. Uh (laughs) I was so nervous and I, I didn't need to be. I called him back and he was so sweet and gracious. And he just first thing he just said, oh, I don't know who you are, but I wish I could just give you a hug. I feel what you're going through and I just want to be there for you. And we proceeded to have a two-hour conversation that has since been followed up with almost weekly check-ins. He checks on us all the time. And in that first conversation, he asked if my son was still at Berkeley. And I said, yes. And he said, you know, I'm up there for business at times. Can I take your son to buy him a burger? And I said, no, 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 you don't understand. No, he's like done with the church. Like he does not want to be contacted by the church. He's done. He said, I know that. You've told me that. I just want to get to know him. He sounds like a cool kid. I want to get to know him. And that just really struck me that this man was willing to travel eight hours north to get to know my son for no other reason than just to get to know him and support our family and just show Christ-like love. And I thought, that's sweet. That's nice. He's just saying that, whatever. Well, no, he's followed up. (laughs) He's followed up several times and said, can I call your son? Can I take him to buy that burger? And I was so touched by that. And in our conversation, he said, he wanted to know, you know, does your son still believe in God? And And I said, well, he's currently questioning a lot of things, but I think deep down, just being his mom, I think he definitely still holds a reverence for our savior. And and he said, well, here's the thing. When a child leaves the church or when anyone leaves the church, we know that the savior is going to come again. And the question you have to ask yourself is when he comes, is that person going to run toward the savior or run away from the savior? And everything in me knows that my son will be one of the first to run toward the savior. And that was his way of connecting with me as a mother and letting me know that I could let go of some of the worries that sometimes we have, that it's in the Savior's hands. I know my son is okay. I've known that, but I appreciated this leader recognizing that. And his ministry was so beautiful. And I was so touched by that. And I know Mary Alice, you so many times have been inspired as our Relief Society president to reach out to me at a specific time where you didn't know how bad I needed that or to assign a minister to me. You had no idea how bad I needed that particular minister to be in our lives. And so I really feel there's angels. There are angels on this earth and beyond who are protecting us and protecting our faith and holding us in a special space to keep us connected to the Savior. And whether our path remains in the church or not, staying connected to the Savior is the most important thing, especially of us who really believe. And I'm so grateful for those ministers. Yeah, they are angels. I mean, I Elder Holland gave a talk a while back about ministering of angels, and he talks about the earthly angels that we have, which are basically Christ-like disciples of Christ who do the right thing at the right time. 
And then our angels beyond the veil who are our family, who are watching over us and guiding these interactions. And none of it's coincidence. It's actually interesting because I had this prompting in the temple about who your minister needed to be. And it's interesting. I went in the locker room and I looked at my phone. I never do that when I'm at the temple. And I just happened to just feel prompted to do that. And then you had texted me about a ministering assignment and what you were prompted. But to have the same person, I was prompted to assign you in the temple. And that shows me Heavenly Father is totally mindful of all of us. He knows us. He's going to prompt us. He's going to guide us. He knows you're struggling. He knows when you're struggling and why and how and what's causing it and what we can do to help each other. And when we can try to stay in tune and try to stay connected with our Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ, we'll have these opportunities to be these ministering angels here. The Holy Ghost allows us that opportunity all the time if we're open to it. And that was a powerful testimony builder for me. You know, to see your text of what you were thinking, and it was the exact person that was just in my mind, my whole temple shift. And that just made me know Heavenly Father loves Autumn McAlpin and her family. I remember that was such a beautiful day because I remember actually that person had reached out to me just randomly. And she's lovely. I've known of her forever, but I'm not close with her. But she just randomly reached out to me that day and just asked how I was doing. And it was actually kind of a terrible day. We were going through a lot. And I remember thinking, is she my minister? Maybe they made her my minister. How would she know to reach out to me? (laughs) And then I had that prompting, she's supposed to be your minister. And then that, as you described, it was that same moment I texted you and then you had the same prompting. That was one of those days, those golden days where you're like, yep, somebody's up there working this. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's thinking about me. Oh, no, it's true. I think it's powerful. And it's interesting when I called that woman to assign her as your minister she told me she knew she was supposed to be your minister and that she had reached out to you. So I just, just that whole communication ring was just a beautiful thing to witness, right? And to know none of it's by coincidence. But how have those in your sphere of influence faced major trials of faith and remained strong and anchored in their testimony of Christ? How have their examples kind of helped you personally? Oh, my whole life and my family. The last name of our matriarch is Tate, and we call ourselves the Tate women. When I was born, we had five generations of Tate women. I had a great grandmother, and we're all kind of strong spirited. <laughs> you may describe us as feminist, and we kind of drive the boat in our homes and our communities. We like to get things done. And the lineage that I have, which is also referenced in my patriarchal blessing, I'm told that that will be very important in my life, but it goes back to an ancestor, my great, great, great grandmother whose name was Elizabeth Xavier Tate. And she was from Mumbai, India. And she converted to the LDS faith, came to America, crossed the plains with the Willie Handcart Company. And by herself, by the way, she had fallen in love with the sea captain who was off away sailing. So she did this by herself with two kids, one who passed away along the way on their migration to out West. And she settled in the Logan Valley. And because of the color of her skin, Unfortunately, the LDS community ostracized her and she'd given up her family back in India. She was of the upper caste in India. So she'd actually given up a lot of wealth and privilege to convert to a Christian faith and come to the States and do all of this. And she was alone when she did it, lost a child and came and settled in a valley with her, what she thought were sort of like-minded spiritual peers. But unfortunately, they didn't feel that way about her. Did she stop? Did she quit? No. She raised 10 kids, was a school teacher with her husband, and was a strong, wonderful woman. 
And many stories have been written and told about her and her legacy. I have a picture of her. Actually, I'm sitting in my office next to a picture of her because I'm one of the people in our family who kind of looks like her. And I feel her presence all the time. And whenever I think, oh, the church is a hard place or in my 20s, I went through that period. Many of us do questioning in church history. And I would think about her and I would think about the sacrifices she had made for her faith in, in Christ. And then I think about my mother and my grandmother and my great grandmother and all of them went through divorces. And in many ways, they were wronged by a church authority or deceived by those they loved. And they all still chose to show up in the ways that they could. I remember my mom had those similar experiences where after, shortly after her divorce, she had such a hard time going to church, going there and sitting there. I know many people who go through divorce have this struggle where you sit there and you listen to all the talks and lessons about eternal families and you start to feel like a failure. You start to feel like people are talking about you or they don't know what went on in your story and they're making up things. And she would go and she would just struggle and suffer in silence. And a lot of times she would end up in the car but she told me what kept her rooted. She said, I don't show up for the people. Sometimes I show up despite the people, but I show up because of three things. First, my unwavering faith in Jesus Christ, who had been there for her through all of this. Secondly, her belief in the Book of Mormon. And third, in her faith that the church was the restored keys as established by Christ on earth. And those are the three things she focused on and continues to focus on to this day even though it's not always easy for her still. And I feel this legacy of matriarchy that I have in my family and watching those spiritual giants, not all of them always stayed in the church or were always active, but the way that they led with Christ-like love was so strong and powerful to me. And I'm so grateful for them being my role models and having that spiritual tether to them and that line. And I do eagerly await crossing into the next life and seeing and recalibrating with these women who've left this spiritual legacy that has been so strong in my life. And I'm so grateful for them. I love that you have this legacy of really strong women that you can reference to help you during these tricky times. Because that is an important thing to have that family connection to something bigger than yourself and the sacrifices that they made. We have ancestors that have crossed the plains and John Taylor was my great, 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 great grandfather. And the persecution he went through with Joseph Smith and in Carthage jail and everything else, you think, how did they stay? I mean, it was so hard, so oppressive. And then you think they did. They stuck it out. They stayed, became prophet. I mean, all the things he went through, how could I forsake him for his sacrifice? That's my personal reference. Not everyone feels that way. And for first generation members who are listening to this, you are the pioneer you made the sacrifices to join this church and the changes you made in your life to be a part of this gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's just powerful too. I always want to clarify that you don't have to have pioneer heritage to be <laughs> a full member of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. People who join the church, they are the pioneers. It's funny you say that because many people in the LDS, LGBTQ space say that in some ways their children are the pioneers. They're going through things to teach others how to love better. And sometimes we, many of us feel our kids signed up for this. <laughs> I know I feel that way. Gavin told me when he wanted to come out in high school, I, we and a therapist who's close family friend all said, maybe you want to wait till after high school. High school can be rough, especially where we live. And, and he said, no, mom, if I can help one kid's life to be easier by coming out now, if I can help one kid feel less alone, it's worth it to me. And you know what? I didn't tell you this, but after the lesson last week, one of the parents who talked to me said, 
that my son coming out is what made her son struggle less and be more okay with who he was because he was struggling the same way with his mental health. But after watching my son embrace it and take one for the team or whatever you want to call it, he felt less alone. And I saw that first circle moment, full circle moment um, through that. I was touched by my son's bravery. I love that. And really openly sharing what we're going through and how we're trying to stay strong unites us. It makes us feel like we're not alone. I feel like Satan doesn't want us doing that. <laughs> he doesn't want us supporting and uplifting and helping and connecting. And I just think it's part of our life here and our mission in life here is to support and love and lift each other. Absolutely. And so many times I think people weaponize things that they don't need to. They weaponize our kids. They say, these kids are taking down the plan or these kids are Satan destroying the plan. And I think the plan is only destroyed when people stop loving each other and stop turning to Christ. And when you break up families because parents kick their kids out or tell them they're evil, that's what Satan wants. Satan wants us to not love each other and to not care about each other. The best thing he can do, and I know it's a complicated space. It's in a complicated world and there's a lot to it that we have to navigate. But when people are sharing with us who they are authentically, the best thing we can do is what Christ did, which is just love them. Just love them and listen to them and just show them that love. And that's the plan. Yeah. When people show up authentically like that with that kind of Christ-centered love, it connects those people to the gospel of Jesus Christ and creates this refuge in some ways from kind of these storms of life. And there will be storms. Everyone's going to be caught in a storm at some point. That's what this was all designed for. And we do learn from different opportunities. You gave another lesson a while ago about they're not trials and challenges. We call them opportunities. And <laughs> I have not forgotten that ever since I use that all the time, these opportunities for growth. But it's really true. None of us are getting through this life without that. The more we can kind of support and sustain each other, that's how we show we're true representatives of Christ. Absolutely. That's right. So what advice do you have? I just want to close out with this is what advice do you have for those who are drifting and they feel like they're losing their faith? I think all of us probably face that at some point in our lives, right? I know I went through my first crisis of, they say crisis of faith. I say crisis of trust. I like to call it a crisis of trust because the faith in Christ never lets you down. But sometimes we find out things or learn things or experience things that make us question maybe leaders or policies or other things, right? And so sometimes we go through crises of trust. And I think we have to focus on the brick that and the foundation that's always there. I know personally, I've kind of gone through a minor deconstruction over the past couple of years, just deconstructing everything, taking it down to the base and then reconstructing with the bricks that I know absolutely work for me. I think we have to start with what do we believe? We have to trust our faith more than our doubts. I think Elder Dork said that. But so for me, the first brick, the biggest brick is my faith in our savior. And right now where I'm at, that's kind of the only brick I really need right now in terms of he's so all-encompassing and teaches all of the qualities that we need to be, that if we just focus our lives doing what he would do, I think we're all going to be okay. When he told us to focus on the first two commandments, we love God, we love our fellow man, we focus on love, we focus on mercy, kindness, forgiveness, humility. If we can just pattern our lives as closely as possible to what the Savior did and just focus on that, I tell my kids this all the time because Besides my son who's left the church, I, I have kids who wonder about things now. And sometimes lessons are hard for them to sit through. And we have frequent reiteration that 
where are you tethered to Christ? Like, how are you tethered to Christ? Do you believe in Christ? Because if you are trying to model Christ-like living, you will always be led down the spiritual path that is intended for you. And I will be the first to say, you're not the first to say this, but sometimes that path is not what we thought it once was. Sometimes our paths take us in different directions. But as long as you're tethered to Christ, you're going to be where you need to be. And you don't have to worry so much, but we have to, as we approach others who are struggling, we have to meet them where they're at. We can't say, hey, come up here to where I am and elevate ourselves. We have to meet them where they're at. And we do that by listening and by learning what their experience is and loving them the way Christ did. Like, as you said, Christ always went after the one. And many in Christianity wear that bracelet or say the phrase, what would Jesus do? And a bracelet my kids and I like to wear also says HWLF, which stands for He Would Love First. And by focusing on that Christ-like love that we learn about so purely when we read the actions that He conducted on earth, we are okay. We're going to be okay as long as we just focus on loving others first. And that's going to allow us to offer grace and mercy and patience, whether we're the person who's suffering going through a trial or that we're encountering those who are, we are going to be in the right space at the right time. So I would just encourage us all to daily ask ourselves, how can we listen, learn, and love better? And if we do that, I don't think we have to worry that much. I think we will have a very happy reunion with our Savior. Beautifully said, Autumn. Thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for your messages and hope and healing that you've provided today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the What Now podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at podcast what now for inspirational messages and highlights from our past and present podcasts. Positive ratings and written reviews are always appreciated. Just subscribe to the podcast and scroll down the episodes and you'll see where you can leave a positive rating and written review. I invite you to help us create positive change by sharing this episode with family, friends, and anyone you think it might help. Just click on that share button wherever you listen to podcasts. We never say goodbye. We say what now? This has been a What Now podcast production.